Father, we do pray that as we're here, we have today, and we want to give you our attention, our hearts. You want to bless today. And Lord, so we thank you again that we're here in this place. Help us to study your word and be encouraged and blessed through your word. And then as we come to the communion table as well, Lord, we don't want that part to be a, a, just an exercise that we do. Um, but Lord, we desire for you to just bless every aspect of this service. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know what's embarrassing? My phone just went off. <laughs> In 20 years, that has never happened. So, I will now show grace and mercy to you. <laughs> Psalm 135. <laughs> I can't believe that. Uh, at least I wasn't doing a wedding or something. So. <laughs> we got through that section of Psalms 120 through 134, 15 psalms that were the songs of the ascents. They were very special uh, psalms that the worshipers would sing as they came up to Jerusalem, as they would come to, to celebrate the major feasts that were taking place uh, during the uh, year, three times a year, the Passover feast in spring, early summer, Pentecost, and then in the fall, the Feast of Tabernacles. And as they would come up, they would sing these psalms, and we went over them. They're very special, and uh, I really enjoyed going through that section. So now we're in Psalm 135, where we read that the psalmist writes, Praise the Lord, and praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, O you servants of the Lord, you who stand in the house of the Lord, and in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good, and sing praises to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, and Israel for his special treasure. So the psalmist begins to praise the Lord. And one of the things, if you've been with us in our study of Psalms, and as you've read it through it yourself in your own readings, in your own studies, the Psalms really is a book about praising the Lord and worshiping the Lord. And one of the things that the Lord has really put on my heart is I want to, to be more of a worshiper. I want to praise the Lord. And one of the things that I have come to understand through the psalmist and through his word and experience it in my own life that as I praise the Lord more, as I worship uh, and spend more time in worship, then I spend less time in worry and anxiety and fretting. Because there's a lot of things that can cause us to worry and to fret in life, isn't there? The trials, the difficulties, the challenges that we go through. And one of the things I've learned through the psalmist, and particularly with David, and we're going to continue to see in the psalms that we have left to study, is that David was truly a man after God's own heart. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel. And when he went through the difficulties of his life, which he did, that he would turn to the Lord and begin to magnify the Lord and get his focus on the Lord. And I, I want to be more like that. And that included worship. And he would declare that I'm going to worship you with all of my heart. So here the psalmist writes, praise the name of the Lord. Notice again the name of the Lord, L-O-R-D. When you see that in your Old Testament book, capitalize L-O-R-D, that's the name of the Lord. And of course, it was Moses there at the burning bush as he would ask God as God was speaking to him, what is your name? So that I can go back and tell the children of Israel what your name is. And the Lord said, I am that I am. 
you tell them that I am has sent you. And so that was translated to YHWH, Yahweh. They made it to where they couldn't pronounce it, no valves, because they reverenced the name of the Lord. It's been uh, translated Jehovah. But whenever you see that in the scribes, whenever they would write the name of the Lord, L-O-R-D, they would go through all this elaborate washings, and then they would come back and begin to write again. And if they, as you see in verse 1, praise the Lord, uh, the name of God, uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, they would do their washings, their cleansings, and then they would come back, praise the name of the Lord, and then they would have to go through that again. But here the psalmist that he's praising, the psalmist praises actually the Lord four times, and then ends up by blessing the Lord four times when we get to the end of this psalm and in between four reasons why the Lord deserves to be praised. But I want to remind us again that Jesus comes along in the New Testament and he declares deity to be divine, to be the I am. And that's why the religious leaders were so upset at Jesus. For example, in John chapter 8, as Jesus said, before Abraham was I am. It was that name of deity. The religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was claiming, that I'm the one that spoke to Moses from the burning bush. I am, ego me in the Greek. And they picked up stones to stone him because they knew exactly what he was declaring to be. He was declaring to be God. And so Jesus, he says that I am. And here's the thing, that the Lord is everything that we need. And Jesus says that I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. That I am the light of the world. That I am the way, the truth, and the life. That I am the door. That I am the vine. That he's everything that we need. He's our salvation. And Jesus comes on the scene in John's gospel, and I love it. Given those names of deity that I am the one, the one way to heaven. I am the one that the bread of life, as you come and eat and drink of me, you'll never hunger and thirst again. That I am the resurrection and the life. Though you die, you will live. And I am the way to the Father. And I am the truth. And I am the life. And I love to look at that. I am the light of the world. And if you are hungry and, and you're not satisfied, know that he is what you need. That he's the bread of life. If you're one that you feel dry in, in your spirit, uh, that he is the one that will revive you. That he's the door of the way. That he's the vine that desires to produce fruit in your life. Everything that we need comes from the Lord. So here we praise him because, first of all, as we read through the psalmist here, uh, praise in the name of the Lord for he is good. And, and he is truly good, isn't he? He is also, he would say, that I am the good shepherd that lays down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and they follow after me. And I know that he is the good shepherd, and that we're in his hands, and no one, he said, will pluck you out of my hands, out of my Father's hands. So we can praise him because, number one, as we read here, he is good. And, and he talks about here in verse 4, I love it, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure, a precious possession is what it means. If you have something that's a treasure to you, it's very important to you, isn't it? And you take care of it, and, and you know where it is, and, and, um, and it's dear to your heart, and, and, and that's what a treasure is. And the Lord declares to his people here, to Israel, uh, that you are a special treasure to me. 
Matter of fact, as you read in the book of uh, Deuteronomy in chapter 7, what is interesting that the Lord is declaring and, and speaking to his chosen people. He says in verse 6 of the chapter, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. And you see, I love that verse because the Lord says to Jacob, to his chosen, to Israel, he says, listen, that you're a special treasure to me. And I chose you not because you're the greatest or the strongest or the mightiest, you're the least. He would say that you're a stiff-necked people. I chose you because I love you. And you see, the same thing is said to you and to me as Jesus came along in those kingdom parables in Matthew's gospel, that he would come along and he would uh, give those parables to, to show us how much the Lord values us and how we're a special treasure to him because Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a man who uh, found a treasure in the field and he gave all that he had to buy the field to take the treasure out. And in those kingdom parables, as you read, the parable of the sower, the parable of the, uh, the buried treasure, the parable of the pearl of great price, those kingdom parables, Jesus gives uh, the you know, um, meaning of it when he gives the parable of the, the sower that the field represents the world. So you can go to that parable of the buried treasure, and here's one who gave everything, and Jesus did. He gave his own life for you and for me to redeem the field, to purchase the field, the world. And he didn't do it to get the world, to get another planet. He has billions of planets that are out there. He did it to get the treasure, and the treasure is you. And one of the things that I pray that you never, ever forget, that I never forget, is how special you are to the Lord. You are a special treasure to him. You are valuable to him. You're a pearl of great price, and he loves you so much. And it's through his grace and love and mercy and goodness that we can praise him. We can praise him second of all, verse 5, for I know that the Lord is great, for our Lord is above all gods. And whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all deep places. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. So the second reason that we can worship the Lord and have reason to, we praise him because God is great. He's the creator. He's in control. And I am so thankful for that. Sometimes it seems like that things around me are out of control, doesn't it? And there are situations that we find ourselves in that we have no control over. I don't have understanding about this, but I know that he is the creator. He's in control. He sits on the throne. He's all-powerful, and there's no situation in which he doesn't know about and which he can't work in. Lord, you are in control. You're sovereign, and I can trust in you, and I can rest in what you're doing in my life. So we praise him because God is great. And then verses 8 through 14, he destroyed the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. He sent signs and wonders into the midst of you, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. He defeated many nations and slew many kings, Shihon, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his people. 
And your name, O Lord, endures forever. And your fame, O Lord, throughout all generations. For the Lord will judge his people, and he will have compassion on his servants. So we worship the Lord. We praise him, number one, because he is good. Second of all, God is great. And then thirdly, God is the faithful judge. He is the faithful judge. He is the righteous judge. And he will judge the nations, just as is spoken of here. Matter of fact, we know that when Jesus comes back, as we read in in Acts, or not in Acts, but in Matthew chapter 25, that as he separates the sheep and the goats, he's judging the nations in that. When the Son of Man comes, verse 31, in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. So we know that when he comes to rule and reign, that he's going to judge the nations. And then he's going to rule and reign as uh, he will establish his kingdom here on this earth for a thousand years. But he is the righteous judge. And you know what? He is the righteous judge in everything that he does. And here's the thing as we look at this, that as I, I read this, that he's the one that, verse 6, the Lord pleases, uh, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. He's in control. But as he does work in our lives, even though we don't understand it, remember this truth, will you? That righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. You see, right before the second coming of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19, when we're ready to come back with the Lord, as he's going to come back literally and physically, uh, and he's going to touch down the Mount of Olives. But we're all going to be in heaven as that event's about ready to happen, as the judgments have been poured out on a Christ-rejected world, that we're going to say together that righteous and true are your judgments. Righteous and true are your decisions, O Lord. And maybe the Lord has allowed things to happen in your life that on this side of eternity you don't understand why. And maybe you're wondering, Lord, why did this happen? Or why did this take place? And I get asked that a lot as a pastor. And I don't know why. But I can fall back on the things that I do understand. That, Lord, that you do love me and I'm a special treasure to you. And that you're in control. And that one day we will all be together and we will say, Righteous and true are your decisions. Righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. And I can trust in you that what you're doing in my life, that you're going to work for good in eternity's perspective. And I may not understand how everything is going to work out. And I may not understand why I'm going through this trial or through this loss or through this difficulty. But Lord, I know that you're righteous and you're true. And you're the righteous judge. And you are the one that desires to work in a way to where you're going to be glorified. And that you're going to have your kingdom be established. And Lord, I want to be a part of that. And I may not understand everything on this side of eternity. But I do know this, that your promise is that you will work all things out for good for those who love you, who are called according to your purposes. And you see, I hope that encourages you because I know there are times where I think, Lord, why did you allow this to happen? But I do know this. That as I trust in him, that it can be a time where I can draw closer to him. And it's a time where he becomes more real in my life. And it's a time where I can understand that, Lord, you can be glorified in this as I just wait on you. And as I'm resting in your love. And as I'm growing. And as I just turn to you. And I just draw close to you and learn of your word. I know 
that there's going to be good that's going to come out of this somehow, some way. Yes, there's the pain that comes with it. And yes, there can be the difficulties. But I know that you're going to see me through. And Lord, you're there with me because you promised you'd never leave me or forsake me. So hear your frame, O Lord, throughout all generations, and he will judge his people, and he will have compassion on his servants. And then verse 15, the idols of the nation are silver and gold, the works of men's hand. And they have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. So the fourth reason that we praise God, number one, as I said, he is good. Second of all, God is great. Thirdly, he's the faithful judge. And fourthly, God is true. God is true. The children of Israel, as you read those books in the Old Testament, the historical books, you know that after the reign of David, you see all the other kings were compared to David in Judah. And they were compared to David because David never bowed the knee to an idol. David sinned. Oh, yeah, he did sin. But you see, David never bowed the knee to an idol. And as Solomon reigned, he would introduce idol worship to the nation once again, mostly because of those foreign wives that he had married, that he was building altars to those foreign gods, burning incense to them. And it greatly negatively affected the nation as after the reign of Solomon, then the 10 northern tribes broke off from Judah and they were full of idol worship. All the leaders, 19 leaders of the house of Israel and then the house of Judah did a little bitter. They had some good kings. But again, idol worship was a big, big problem. And it was, matter of fact, um, they just found recently, not long ago, um, in Jerusalem, they found to where um, they excavated and they found all these idols. And they dated it back to the time of Manasseh. Now, Manasseh was the worst king that Judah ever had. And he reigned the longest, I believe, 55 years. And he plunged the nation deep into idol worship. He was the one that uh, involved all kinds of occultic practices. Uh, they were burning their sons and their daughters under the arms of Moloch. It was a terrible time. And it was because of the sin of Manasseh and a nation going deep into idol worship is that the reason they would go off into captivity. The Lord said, that's it. You're going to go off into captivity. So we see that the prophets would come on the scene and, and tell the house of Israel, the house of Judah, turn away from those idols. The foolishness of worshiping those idols. Don't you remember how I brought you out of Egypt and I gave you the land as an inheritance? And why do you worship those idols? I mean, you prop up this, this image made of wood or metal and it has ears, but it can't hear. It has eyes, it can't see. It has a mouth, but it can't speak. And there's not one example in the scriptures where those idols help them in their time of need. In their time of distress, not one example. And the Lord was saying, turn back to me. I'm the one that brought you into the land. And he had made a promise with them there at Mount Sinai that if you follow me, all will be well with you. But if you go after those idols and false gods, then you're going to find yourself where it's going to be dry. There's going to be famine. There's going to be drought. And eventually there's going to be captivity. And so the prophets came and warned, but yet they ignored that. So they went off into captivity, didn't they? He says something very important here. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Speaking of the idols. You see, everybody worships something. 
There are those who say, I don't worship anything. I don't believe in anything. You worship something. What was the old Bob Dylan song? Some of you, uh, those of us who are older, you got to worship and serve somebody. And it's true. You're going to serve, you're going to worship something or someone. It might be self. And if that is your idol, and that's who you turn to, whatever it is that you turn to in your hour of need, whatever motivates you to get up in the morning, whatever has priority in your life, that becomes an idol. Because an idol just isn't a, a statue or an image made of wood and, and silver or gold that sits on a mantle above the fireplace. It, it can be anything that has priority over your relationship with the Lord. There are a lot of things that can become idols. You know, when Paul was talking to the philosophers in Athens, he said, I look around and I see you have all kinds of altars to all of these different gods. It is believed there are 3,000 little temples and altars to all these gods all over Athens. And then they had one to the unknown God. And Paul says, I want to talk to you about him, the true and the living God. There's all kinds of idols that can come into our lives. And here's the thing. Whatever your idol is, you're becoming more like it. If it is self, you're becoming more selfish. If it is greed, you're becoming more greedy. If it's pleasure, you're going to run deep into seeking pleasure. The good news is this for you and I, who the Lord truly is the priority in our lives, that we are becoming more and more like him. And that's the work that the Lord wants to do in our lives, isn't it? He wants to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, but he needs to be first. Listen, there are things that we enjoy in life. I enjoy doing things in life. But make him the priority of every area of your life. And I've said this before, and I'm going to keep saying it. It is not that Jesus is just added to your life. It isn't that Jesus is just a part of your life. He is your life. And as he is your life, you're going to experience that abundant life and enjoy those things that you have that he's blessed you with more than if you turn to them and trust in them. And listen, those things are not going to bring the satisfaction and the fulfillment. And they are not going to bring, you know, the things that you need truly in life. You may enjoy them for a short season, but in your hour of need, they're not going to help you just as these idols didn't help the children of Israel. It is the Lord that he is your hope and he's everything that we need. Make him a priority in your life. I hope and pray that we're understanding that more and more as we're growing in the Lord in our Christian walk. There are so many things that pull us away from the Lord. There are so many things out there that want our attention. And I pray that we would say, you know what, Lord? I don't want to have those idols in my life. And to really be honest with him. I know I have to be honest with them. I, I don't want to have idols, Lord. Is there anything that has a priority over you on this day or any day that has become an idol to me? And Lord, I want you to really, truly reign and rule over my life and sit upon the throne of my heart. So here are four reasons why we can praise the Lord. And then he gives the four blessings in verses 19 through 21. Bless the Lord, O house of Israel. Bless the Lord, O house of Aaron. Bless the Lord, O house of Levi. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. And bless the Lord out of Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. Psalm 136. Now Psalm 136, we're going to do something a little different. Psalm 136, throughout the, the millenniums, 
that um, is a psalm that was sung in alteration. In other words, the priests would say a line. It's even done today um, in the synagogues as they would read this psalm. Uh, it's done in churches today. Uh, so the priest would say a line, and then the people responded by saying, His mercy endures forever. So we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to read the first part of the verse, and then you're going to read, His mercy endures forever. Okay? So are you ready? Here we go. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for His mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords. Verse 4, to him who alone does great wonders. To him who by wisdom made the heavens. To him who laid out the earth above the waters. To him who made great lights. The sun to rule by day. And the moon and stars to rule by night. Verse 10, to him who struck Egypt in their firstborn and brought out Israel from among them with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm to him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it but overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings and slew famous kings. Shihon, king of the Amorites and Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his servant, who remembered us in our lowly state and rescued us from our enemies, who gives food to all flesh. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven. Great. So let me ask you, what do you think the point of this psalm is? That is, mercy endures forever. And you might be thinking, why did we go through this? It's because it's traditional that it's been done for thousands of years, this psalm read in this way, where the priest, the leader would say the first line and then the congregation would join in. But I think there's an important point here that the Lord is getting across, and that is his mercy endures forever. You see, mercy means not getting what we deserve. Not getting what we deserve. And what is it that we deserve? We deserve death. Because all of us are sinners. The wages of sin is death. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve hell. I pray, and I don't think there's anyone here, that we would think, I deserve heaven. No, we deserved hell. So because of his mercy, because Jesus Christ came and died on the cross and took the wrath for you and for me and died in place of us and, and bore our sins and, and the one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
His mercy has no end. We are recipients of his great mercy and love, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. So mercy means not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, the unmerited unfavor of God. And the scripture indicates to us that we are going to just marvel at his mercy and his grace for all eternity. And this psalm here reminds me, it's like the psalmist is reminding us that his mercy goes on and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And I'm so thankful that the psalmist didn't say his mercy ends or no more. Or that there's a limit to when he's going to pour out his mercy on us. But his mercy endures forever. And the psalmist is thanking God for who he is. He's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. The gods of the other nations that we just talked about, that the previous psalmist, that psalm that we read, uh, those are false. Uh, they're, They're not good. They're not true. They're not full of mercy. Only our God is. And the psalmist, as he talks about how God dealing with his people, he's given thanks to the creator, his wisdom, his power. And the psalmist is giving thanks for the blessings that the Lord has poured out on his people. And I pray that we will always have a thankful heart because he has been good to us. He has been so merciful to us. We're not getting what we deserve. Living in his grace, getting what we don't deserve, his favor, his love, Oh, Lord, it's so incredible. It's infinite. And he is our redeemer, verses 10 through 12, as we read. And Jesus, he has redeemed us, not our gold and silver, as Peter writes in his epistle, but by the precious blood of the Lamb. That he is our shepherd, verses 13 through 26, as we read. That, as I mentioned to you already, that Jesus said that I am the good shepherd. It lays down his life for the sheep. And he is the conqueror, verses 17 through 22. And he did conquer sin and death as he hung on that cross and as he rose from the grave. And then he is the deliverer, verses 23 through 26. He has delivered us from sin and death from this world. Are we thankful for that? He's delivered us from Egypt. So a wonderful psalm when we really look at it, that the point is his mercy endures forever. And we praise God for that. We give thanks to the God of heaven. Psalm 137. It's a psalm that the psalmist is writing while they're in captivity in Babylon. And by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept. When we remembered Zion, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there, there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. So here, the psalmist is writing about when they're in captivity, that they wept as they were in captivity. They're in Babylon, and here are the Babylonians saying, Hey, you know, why don't you sing us one of those songs of Zion? And it's the implication here is they're saying it in a mocking kind of way. Hey, why don't you sing us one of those songs? And, and here the psalmist, they're, they're so grieved, they're, they're weeping, that they, they put their harps on the willows in the midst of it. And as they're thinking about how we miss Jerusalem and we're in captivity and, and the sorrow that they have in their hearts, and it goes on, the psalmist, to say, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. 
So here the psalmist is saying, oh, even though I'm in this place and, and they're mocking me and they want me to sing the song of Zion, they're, they're trying to remind me that Jerusalem has been destroyed and, and we're out of our land. And how much of a blessing that it was to be in that place that God had us be, the inheritance that he's given to us. And I can't forget that. But I weep. I weep over it. And I am going to remember you. And the Lord was gracious and would bring him back from that captivity back into the land. You know, one of the things as I think about this, that what sin does, when they came out of Egypt in bondage and, and the Lord had warned them that if you go after those other gods, there is going to be, as I mentioned to you, a dryness and drought and, and famine and, and eventually captivity. And that's what happens when we get involved in sin. So there's going to be a, a dryness. If you get involved in the world, if you get involved with Egypt, which is a picture of the world of the Old Testament, if you the, the, act like Babylon, they were worshiping the Babylonian gods and they're in Babylon and they're weeping and yes, the Lord said, I know my thoughts towards you. Jeremiah, write them a letter. Their thoughts of peace and not of evil to give them a future and hope. I'm still your future and hope. But there's great consequences because of it. And there was weeping because of it. And they missed Jerusalem. And unfortunately, many Christians, when they get involved in sin, they realize that it's very painful there is forgiveness, but there are serious consequences. And that's why it's a loving father that says, stay away from Babylon. Stay away from sin. Remember this, that sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. And it will hurt you. And you will have dryness and famine in your heart and in your soul spiritually, and eventually you'll be held captive by it. And I am so thankful that we have a God who restores the years that the locusts have eaten. But there's a lot of pain if we go after the world, and I pray that we're understanding the world's going to scream at you, the compromise, that look what I have. And it was Daniel, when he went to Babylon, he determined in his heart he was not going to defile himself. And I hope that we have that same kind of heart. Lord, I don't want to defile myself. I don't want to say, well, I'm in the world. I might as well act like the world. We're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. Because it's going to bring great pain and weeping to your life. Are we understanding that? It's not how much of the world can I have and still be a Christian. It's, Lord, how much do I have of you that I want to experience that abundant life and to know you more and be surrendered to you? That is the best way. That is the way to be blessed in life because his ways are true and good. I'm reminded of Lot. Lot, in the book of Genesis, you know Lot, the nephew of Abraham. It's interesting, in the New Testament, he's called Righteous Lot. In the Old Testament, in Genesis, you see Lot, and, and he has his herds of animal, and Abraham has his herds of animal, and they begin to have contentions, the herdsmen. Uh, Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen, they're fighting over the land, and Abraham said to Lot, listen, we're brethren. We don't need, there's plenty of room out here for our animals. So you pick where you want to go, 
and I'll go the other direction. So Lot looks down in the valley of Jordan there where Sodom and Gomorrah is. And he said, it looks good down there. I'm going to go over there. And he pitched his tent outside of Sodom. And then all of a sudden, the next time do you see Lot and his family, they're living in the city of Sodom. The next time do you see him, he's sitting at the gate of Sodom, which is the position of leadership. There was something about Sodom, even though it was known for its great wickedness. And you know the story. But there was something that was stimulating, that was interesting, uh, that drew them into the city. And it can happen today. And there is Lot. And even though as those angels came and said, you need to get out of here, God is going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's going to be fire and brimstone. It was Lot was thinking, you're joking, right? And his family were thinking that they were joking. And it's like, you need to hurry up. If you've got any other family members, you need to get out. You need to go to the mountains, not to stay here in the plane. You need to get out of here or you're going to be in very much danger of being consumed by the judgment of the Lord. And, and Lot, it says, that he was slow to respond. And, and here they are. They're, they're kind of in the house. They're wavering. They're, and finally, the angels grabbed them and said, we got to get out of here. They were hesitant to go. And as they're going, don't look back. Don't even look back at the destruction. And it says that Lot's wife looked back and she what? Turned into a pillar of of salt. And it wasn't that she was looking back to, oh, I want to see the fire and brimstone. It, It means in the Hebrew that she longed for Sodom. She was longing, oh, this can't be real. Can we go to this little Zoar in the plains? I don't want to go to the mountains, Lot is saying. I want to go to Zoar. I want to, I want to plant it there. This is little place. And you see, it's so easy for any of us to get sucked into something that seems so stimulating and so interesting. It seems like it's prosperous. This, this will satisfy me. And we get sucked in further into it. And, and we get involved in it. And then pretty soon, even though Lot knew the great wickedness that was in that city, how can you guys do this great wickedness to these guys that came that were angels? And the angels, you know, would hit them with blindness. He was comfortable there. And it had a huge negative effect on his family. They didn't want to go. I pray that we wouldn't fall into that. Till we look at the world and say, oh, that's really interesting. That looks good. That'll be pleasing. That's stimulating. That'll be satisfying because it's a trick of the enemy. And that we wouldn't say, can I just have this little Zoar? Lord, I know that you want me to go to the mountains. That place of protection, that place where I'm going higher with you. But I kind of want to camp here. Have a little bit of the world in me. Saul, I want you to go and destroy all of the Amalekites, every single one of them. Saul comes back, great celebration. 
The Lord said, I want you to destroy all the sheep and the oxen, destroy completely because of what they did to the children of Israel. The Amalekites are a picture of the flesh, by the way, in the Old Testament. The Amalekites would sneak up on the children of Israel in the wilderness there and sneak up on the rear and pick them off and the weak off. And that's what the flesh does. Sneaks up on us when we're feeling weak, we're fatigued, we're tired. So the Lord said, Saul, you're the king. Gather the men, go to war. I want you to destroy all the Amalekites, every single one of them, all their sheep, oxen, nothing left. Here comes Saul. He comes back. He comes back with the best of the sheep of the oxen. He comes back. I'm here to sacrifice. It's a great celebration. I did all that the Lord commanded me. Samuel says, really? What's the bond of sheep in my ear? And who's the guy you're bringing? Oh, it's Agai, the king of the Amalekites. Bringing them back as a little trophy. You see, oftentimes in life, we want to have our little agai. No big deal. Why are you so hard on me, you know, Samuel? Bless me for the people. Why are you making a big deal out of this? And I'll tell you why. Because he brought back Agai, the king of the Amalekites. He was to destroy all of them. And it was 20 years later. Guess who killed Saul? An Amalekite. And if you're one that says, oh, I just got this little Zoar. I got this little Agai. I got this little thing that I enjoy doing. I, I like to go down once in a while and pull up some things on the computer. I like to go out and have a good time with the guys. You know, we go out and have a little fun. It gets a little wild sometimes. No big deal. Nobody needs to know about it. I, I like to do this thing, participate in that. You got a little ag guy, listen, it's going to do you in and wipe you out eventually. It's going to do you in and wipe you out. And that's why it is a loving father that says that I care about you and I love you and I want you to get rid of all the of the ag guys out of your life. I want you to go to the mountaintop. I want you to go higher with me. Not to be in Sodom. And if there's anything in our lives as we now come to the communion table that you know that the Lord has been speaking to you about, that you got a little agai, that you got a little zoar that you kind of plant yourself in, that you know you're involved in things because it's stimulating, it's interesting, but you know that it's sin and it's carnality. It's going to wipe you out. And it's going to do you in spiritually. And know that it is the loving Father that says, I died for you. And, and it's the loving Father that says, I've given you the very best, my son, who gave all for you because you are a special treasure to him. And the world is a lie. And the enemy, he's going to lie to you and deceive you. But the Lord desires to lead you to a life of blessing and goodness. As you say, Lord, you are the priority of my life. And Lord, help me in honesty of my heart and in my life to get rid of the Zoars I'm not going to plant there, to get rid of the egg guys, to get rid of all those things, to live for you. As we go to the communion table, if there's anything, as we're in that attitude of worship, as the communion elements are being passed out, remember what Jesus has done for you. And then you go to him and say, Lord, help me 
to get rid of the agais out of my life, the fleshly tendency, those things, and to live for you, to walk in your Holy Spirit, to, to walk with you closely. So, Lord, I can experience that abundant life that you have for me. So, Father, we thank you for this time that we've had tonight in these chapters. And, Lord, they're so powerful. What the psalmist wrote is we feel the heart of the psalmist, the, Lord, the, the message that you have through these words that are given to us to live for you, to love you, to walk with you, because we know that sin has devastating effects on us. And we're grateful that Jesus came and died for our sins. But we want to live for you, Lord, so we're not hurt. We don't experience the dryness, the famine, and the captivity that sin brings. So, Lord, I pray as we are here, first of all, I want to pray if there's anybody that might be here tonight, that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. You see, his mercy and grace is extended to you. Jesus took the punishment for you. You can't save yourself. That's the truth that comes from God's word. You can't save yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't be worthy enough. But you're very valuable to God so much that he sent his son who was perfect, who died in place of you and for you. And he cried from that cross, it is finished. I've done the work and I've paid the price. He was put into a grave and he rose again. And he's alive and he loves you. And the invitation is given to you personally to surrender your life to him and come and be forgiven of sin, to have the hope of heaven, to come into access and relationship with the Father that only comes through Jesus Christ. He knocks at the door of your heart and he promises as you open up your heart to him that he will come in and fellowship with you. He will save you and forgive you as you surrender your life to Jesus for him to be your personal Lord and Savior. If that means anything to anyone tonight, will you do that? Will you pray this? Jesus, I come to you and I pray that you would forgive me of my sins. I confess that I am a sinner. And I thank you for dying for my sins. And I believe you're alive because you're touching my heart right now. And I now give you my life. My life is not its own. I want to put away the idols and Lord, you to be the priority, be my personal Lord and Savior. And help me to live for you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And if anybody here prayed that prayer, when we conclude the service, will you come up and talk with me? I want to pray with you and bless you and encourage you. But right now as we come to the communion table, may we remember what Jesus has done for us to deliver us from sin and from the world, from Babylon, from Egypt, from being in bondage to those things, affected by those things. Lord, we know we can't do it in our own strength. It's you living in our hearts. Lord, may we remember the price that your son paid for us. And if we can trust him with our salvation, we can trust you. We can trust you with our lives now. 
So bless this time as the elements are handed out. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.